Shabbat Shalom, I am Rabbi Nick Renner. I say this for the podcast, really, for all of you out there in podcast world. We are in Parashat Vayigash. Vayigash, oh my gosh. It begins, let's see, in chapter 44. 44.18. Thank you, Robert. Um, but before we get into this, I want to take a moment just to pause, to take stock, to do a little recap, uh, because it's important where we are. We're in the Parsha that ends, that caps off the Joseph story. Joseph's story is the longest story we have in the entire book of Genesis. It's the most well-developed, most beautiful, most sort of literary quality story we have, and we're at sort of the big crescendo of it, the big uh, moment where it all comes to a head, the Joseph story. So before we get into directly reading from this week's Parsha, before we get to that big finish, um, I'd love for folks to just give us a little recap. Tell Who can tell the Joseph story in a paragraph or two or a sentence or two? Because the thing is, it's a really long story. Like I said, not for nothing, it's the longest story in the book of Genesis over partiote and partiote and partiote. So I want to have a little recap, really help us build up the drama before we get to that big finish. So how does Joseph start? Anyone, just jump in. As the favorite son of his father. Favorite son of his father. And what does his father give him? Yes, the Technicolor dream coat, as we know from the musical. What happens then? He's thrown in a pit. Yes, who does that? His brothers. That's right. His brothers. Yeah, that's right. And what are they jealous of? Besides the coat. Dad likes him the most. That's right. And what's Joseph's little gift that he has? He can read dreams. Dreams, that's right. Um, He's a dreamer. He shares them. And he shares them. Maybe if he had kept his mouth. He shares these dreams and these visions, perhaps to the detriment of his own situation, um, when he talks about the sheaves of wheat bowing to the one sheaf of wheat. Um, and it's funny, the rabbis even sort of carry that as a tradition in the Talmud and rabbinic material. The rabbis say that a dream is one sixtieth, one part in sixty, of a full prophecy. So we even have this tradition that dreams tell us something. Anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, off track here. So we have Joseph, he has these dreams, he aggravates his brothers, they throw him in the pit, and then what happens after that? Sold into slavery. There you go, what were you going to say? A sliver of conscience. Yes, they have a sliver of conscience. They think they're, first they're just going to kill him outright, and then they decide, no, why don't we at least just like throw him in the pit and, uh, you know, sell him off into slavery. We'll make a few bucks on the side. And what are they going to do? What do they tell Jacob? He's dead. He's dead. He was eaten by a wild animal. What happens after he goes into slavery? He's carried by some traveling group to Egypt. And goes down to Egypt. That's right. Goes to live with Potiphar. Yep. And he has problems with Potiphar's wife. That's right. Now, what does he do? And then what happens to him after that? Goes to prison. Goes to prison. What happens in prison? The dreams were back around to that prophetic piece, that him being able to tell the future from other people, from the dreams that people are having. What happens then? He is brought to the attention of Pharaoh. Right. Pharaoh's having troubling dreams. Yes. So he winds up, he works his way out of prison by virtue of telling the future based on these dreams and what's going to happen to people. Gets to Pharaoh, then what? Something raised up to be mighty force in Pharaoh's realm. Chief of staff. That's right, yeah. The, yeah, chief of staff, sure. What, in particular, is he able to divine that is going to happen to Egypt? 
The famine. The famine, that's right. And this is what's so important there, is there are going to be years of famine that are going to afflict this whole region, not just Egypt, but even Israel, because what happens then? The brothers turn down. There we go. Okay, so this famine that Joseph is able to predict um, for the Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, okay, great, we can, we'll take action to prevent some kind of starvation. We'll build up our stores, we'll um, prepare to wait out the famine, but the brothers didn't know this was going to happen. All of the rest of Jacob's fa- of uh, Joseph's family is still up in Egypt. Or sorry, not Canaan. Egypt. Canaan, thank you. That's what I meant to say. I hate it when that happens. They're all up in Canaan, and they're suffering from the famine. There's not enough to eat. And so they come wandering down in search of food and resources. What happens then when they come back to Joseph? They confront Joseph. Or they, they have to see Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. There we go. This is what's sort of setting the stage for where we are right now. That they come down. They don't know who this guy is. They're just worried about their family. They're starving people. Um, But he picks them out. He picks them right out. He can tell that this is them. But he doesn't let on to them. He doesn't reveal that to them. So instead, he winds up having this... He ultimately winds up having this banquet. There's some back and forth between... Joseph and the brothers and going back and forth between Canaan, but what sets the stage for this week's Parsha is this banquet that they have. They have this whole big dinner and he loads them all up with all these with all kinds of supplies and provisions to take back, um, except for one of them. The youngest. And what does he, what happens with the youngest? Benjamin. What happens with him? It's a cup in his- That's right, he's laid a trap here. He set a snare in that he took this silver, this goblet, um, this precious thing, and he had one of his servants place it in Benjamin's things. Can I? Back yeah, up? go ahead, back up. Um, I'm just thinking. I'm sure there were many, many out of towners that were coming mm-hmm. to him, begging for food mm-hmm. or willing to sell things for food. Why was it that he threw a banquet for this particular group of people? So. I think it comes out because, first of all, he recognizes them. Right. He seems to be laying the groundwork for this. Like, sorry, so go ahead. So wouldn't his stat wouldn't it, wouldn't it have like, looked strange? Right, unusual. Very but potentially. Of all the people that have come to him, most likely. The Given Egyptians that the Egyptians would not eat with you. Right. Right. So very, very odd. So we'll get a little bit into the details here. At first, when they first show up looking for food, he accuses them of being spies. And they tell the story of, no, we're not spies. We're trying to look out for our aged father, Jacob, um, and our other brother who's still there. And he says, well, if you aren't spies, then verify your story. Bring all of you. All of you have to come down. So he forces them to bring Benjamin down, who's the youngest, the most beloved, all of that. So he seems to be sort of reeling them in with this whole thing. Would it have looked strange? A little bit. But given that he's accused them of being spies and wrongdoers and they're hungry and they're starving and they are trying to figure out how to get in his good graces it seems like they're willing to go with whatever he's demanding of them as strange as it is well his position is probably strong enough where no one questions whatever he does. yeah exactly he, he has at this point risen to such prominence that he can make these kinds of demands that he can push it like that would it have looked strange in the world at that moment <clears throat> maybe but if this guy I mean also think about that he's this guy who reads people's dreams. He has some kind of mystical, prophetic ability. So I suspect that if he's doing something weird, 
people might not look so askance at it. Um, at least that's just me. You're hearing Rabbi Nick Renner here. You're not hearing the Rabbanim or the Sages or whatever. I'm just, you know, riffing on it. But, uh, so, for this banquet that they're having, this is after they bring their youngest brother, the vulnerable one, the one who Jacob loves the most, who they didn't want to bring initially because they were worried something might happen. He's forced them to bring him along. And so Joseph sets this trap for him by putting this, having his servant place this goblet in his things. He then springs the trap, says, Aha, I caught you. You stole this thing of mine. Um, now what's interesting is what the brothers do in response. Did you all cover this last week or look at this? Uh... Judah. Okay. So what happens, what Judah says, um, it says, How can we prove our innocence? Joseph first says, um, he goes in about how, you know, you could, you could be executed for such a thing. Um, and so he says, so Judah says, no, 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 let's not kill anyone, but why don't we all become your slaves in response? And Joseph says, no, only the one who did this is going to become my slave. The rest of you are free to go. That takes us up to our parsha this week. The big uh, conclusion of the Joseph story. We are in chapter 44, 18. <coughs> we need a reader. We've got a monologue here from Judah. <clears throat> and this monologue happens to be the longest single speech that happens in the book of Genesis. So we need a strong reader to help bring us in to read aloud what is Judah's, how does, what is Judah's uh, response to all of this? How is Judah going to try and fix it? Yeah, I'll read since then. You want to read? All right, cool. So verse 18, chapter 44, by Yigash. We are getting Judah's now, this big finish, this response where Judah is setting out to try and save Benjamin. You want me to start at 18? Yeah, start at 18. Go for it. Judah now approached him and said, By your leave, my lord, please give your servant a hearing, and do not let your anger flare up at your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we said to my lord, We have an aged father and a young boy of his old age, whose full brother is dead. He alone was left of his mother. And so his father loves him all the more. You then said to your servants, Bring him down here to me, and let me lay my eyes on him. But we said to my lord, The lad cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, he will die. You then said to your servants, If your youngest brother doesn't come down with you, you'll never see my face again. So when we went up to your servant, my father, we related to him my lord's words. And when our father said, Go back and buy us a bit of food. We said, we can't go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go down, for we won't be allowed to see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us, your servant. My father then said to us, You know that of the two my wife bore me, one is gone from my side. And I said, Surely he's been ripped to shreds. I haven't seen him to this day. If you take this one, too, from me, and some calamity befalls him, you will lower my gray head in woe to Sheol. And now, if I go to your servant, my father, and the lad, whose whole being is bound up in his, is not with us, and he sees that the lad is not there, he will die, and your servants will have lowered your servant, our father's gray head in anguish to Sheol. For your servant made himself responsible for the lad 
to my father saying, if I don't bring him back to you, I will stand guilty before my father for all time. So now please let your servant remain as my Lord's slave in place of the lad and let the lad go home with his brothers. For how can I go home to my father without the lad and thus see harm, the, the harm my father will suffer? Go on. That's the end of the chapter, right? That's the, yeah, the end of the chapter. Okay. And the, and the speech. Yes. Thoughts, questions, responses? Sheol. Sheol, the pit. Desolation. This, um, the, the speaker is the same uh, person, as I recall, who convinced the brothers uh, not to kill him. Correct? And I don't think it was in the Torah. I think it was in Midrash saying that his intention had been to go back and actually get him out of the pit. And free him or something. And free him. Yeah. Uh, but he went back and found the, the pit empty. <laughs> That's right. So we have um, a greater degree of morality perhaps ascribed to him yes. in that sense. Um, so you can see perhaps where this comes from. Other thoughts? Questions? That was Judah, wasn't it? This is Judah talking. Judah. Yeah. This is Judah talking. It's sort of you can imagine it as the great monologue, like the great speech at the uh, at the climax of the movie in that way. Um, him giving this to say, you know, that he really is stuck between a rock and a hard place. That he says, look, I understand that this situation is what it is, that you are perhaps just in your retribution against my brother, but I can't let this happen to my father in this sense. Well, he's also throwing himself into a pit. Yes, he's saying, I will take his place. He's willing to put his own <coughs> neck on the line for it. He's the second son, right? I believe Who so. Who the first? Yeah, I believe so. So we, we talked about how Judah has now this empathy mm-hmm. after suffering with his own two sons' death. He seems to understand more of what it is to lose a child and empathizes with how his father... A lovely drasha and a lovely reading of it, absolutely. Um, other thoughts before we get to the big finish? The big reveal. The big reveal, that's right. <laughs> All right, so let's get there. Let's, let's go there. Why are we holding back? So chapter 45, does somebody want to read verses 1 through 8? Joseph could no longer restrain himself before all who were standing in attendance on him. So he cried, Send everyone away from me so that no one else there... So that no one else was there when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He gave voice to a loud wail, and the Egyptians heard, Pharaoh's palace heard. Joseph then said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father really alive? But his brothers were unable to answer him. They recoiled in fear of him. Joseph then went on to say to his brothers, Come, draw near to me. So they drew near. He said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold to Egypt. And now don't be troubled, don't be chagrined, because you sold me here. For it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Same old Joseph. (laughs) There There have already been two years of famine in the land, and there remained five more years without plowing or harvesting. So God sent me ahead of you to assure your survival in the land and to keep you alive for a great deliverance. 
So it is not you who sent me here, but the God who made me the prophet of Pharaoh, a lord of all his household, a rule of the whole land of Egypt. Okay. Responses, thoughts, questions. Here it is. It's all on the table now. Go ahead, Mickey. Well, with all that's going on there is <clears throat> until this right now, it, there's no mention of God. Wisely said. There, this is the first we see God getting roped into the whole thing as well. Yeah. Nick, I have wondered since last year. Okay. Joseph, <laughs> I think of Joseph as a complicated but decent guy. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the general rap is he's a bad guy. Joseph is not to be trusted, loved. But I see him doing what he can to save his people. And, and I, I think... I don't know whether I'm, I'm wrong in my perception. How is Joseph perceived? What, what is he? What is he doing here? Yes. Look, I think one thing that I very much appreciate about these figures who we have within Jewish tradition—a um, Joseph or a Moses, Jacob certainly—and we're going to come to him in a little bit. Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest prophet who would ever live, the only one who saw God face to face, he's a really flawed guy. He does, he goes against what God asks him to do. He fights with God. He fights with the people. We don't have a Christ figure who is some kind of perfection in human form. Um, and that's something I really appreciate about our tradition. So to put it on Joseph now, to sort of train that lens on him, yeah, we see him being arrogant. Um, we see him being deceptive, and we also see him using his gifts to help other people. Yeah. And we also see in this, there are a couple of different ways to slice what he says here, but one reading would be that he's being almost impossibly magnanimous to these brothers who really abused him so horribly. Threw him in a pit. Yeah, and, <laughs> and he has laid out the narrative such that they're not even culpable for their own actions. He lays out the narrative such that it's okay, you all were didn't even, it's not even what you did, this is about a bigger story than the way you treated me or the way you abused me or what you did to me, it's bigger than that, that there's a broader narrative at play and you all are part of this. And he doesn't say, yeah, he does say, verse five, do not be distressed or reproach yourselves. Don't feel bad about it, don't beat yourselves up, it's okay. Um, didn't we learn last year that again Joseph took his people and put them in a separate town so mm -hmm. they would be safe. Mm -hmm. They go into Goshen. We'll see that later in the, in, uh, the Parsha. I don't know that we're going to cover that today, but we do see that, that he takes care of them. I remember discussing last year that he was Joseph levied a tax of something like 20% on the people, which was deemed to be terrible, and I looked and said, would anybody in the year kill for a 20% tax? <laughs> Uh, I just well, I ostensibly, this Joseph has been in a very difficult job, doing his best to try to show compassion for his people and still fulfill his obligations, which I think is a lot of character. You know? I think so too. I mean, in terms of the tax rate, ostensibly, what the state today provides in exchange for our taxes is probably more than what Pharaoh gave them in terms of any kind of social services or uh, safety net or anything. So before we get ahead of ourselves with the tax plan. Um, but yeah, Joseph, I, there's a lot to his character even when we see him 
we see wrongdoing from yeah. him too. He's a complex figure. Yeah, go ahead. I don't see any indication of this in the text. Yeah. Couldn't he also be aware of how arrogant he'd been? <laughs> <laughs> this is the other way to slice this monologue. You can cut it the other way. You could read it as a certain kind of um, like great piety about this is all about God and I serve God and this is God's plan for all of us. Or look at, you know, verse 8. Thought you sent me, but God, he's made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his household, and ruler over the land of Egypt. Look at how great I am now. Um, there, are, uh, there are numerous ways to read it. And because uh, this is one of the things that I learned from my Rav growing up, Steve Sager, he said, it's particularly fitting for this particular locale too, but he said, what's your movie version of what we're reading? And he asks that because we don't, we can't hear them. We can't see it as a movie. But if you put together your own movie version, so one movie version might be how magnanimous he is and how kind he is. The other one might be he's saying this with a certain kind of arrogance. But the words are the same either way. So it's worth, um, it's worth actually giving voice to our unspoken assumptions about what the text may or may not be saying, because it's that's the place from which we can drosh on this. So it sounds I'm hearing two different movie versions of what Joseph might be saying here too. Does anyone have a third? Mickey, go ahead. Well, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. Okay. And uh, through the years, uh, he's matured. He's going through a period of growth, uh, uh, whether he liked it or not. And, and he has his uh, faults and his virtues, but he's maturing through the years. And, and uh, uh, he probably achieved uh, this sense of forgiveness at some point because it's, 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 it's small compared to what he's done <clears throat> what in, in his life, what he's achieved. So this is an excellent point, is that these characters are not static figures who were born this way and act consistently through it. This is actually kind of a funny aside, but um, earlier when I was teaching on Parshat uh, Korach, I think, um, earlier this year, Rabbi Bernstein and I, I came and taught for this group, and Rabbi Bernstein did the week later, and she and I had... I know, diametrically opposing views of Moshe that we taught. Yeah, she and I, she and I thought that was. She and I were talking about it after the fact. We both thought it was really funny that, like, we both came in and said really just opposing things about Moshe. But the reason I mentioned that is because the reading of Moshe that I had was one that where he really grows into a darker kind of figure. He starts out being the most humble, and as his power amasses and as his frustration with the people amasses, he begins to wield that power with real force. Joseph seems to be almost the opposite. He starts out as this arrogant little guy, and he seems to have grown into, with his power, a certain kind of softness, if, we're gonna, if we want to assume that trajectory. A certain kind of, yeah, if we're taking that movie <clears throat> version of it and putting aside the idea that maybe there's an arrogance to it... Um, that he's magnanimous in a way. Or maybe he combines the two. Maybe he remains as arrogant as he used to be, but he also finds a way to be caring and to be magnanimous and to be thoughtful in the way. Go ahead. I mean, as caring as he is, I think we talked last week a little bit about how like, the um, Israelites as slaves in Egypt was set up by uh, Joseph's way of rationing um, because it gave all the land to Pharaoh. And mm-hmm. so could some of the... Um, like in retrospect, um, calling him maybe not as good as um, as Moshe and other figures in the Bible right. come from the way that he set up um, hardships 
even though he was able to take care of his immediate family, he mm-hmm. actually didn't take care of um, any sort of extended family, cultural he, family. Absolutely. So he sets the groundwork for the oppression that's going to be through the sort of, I don't know if the right word is, nationalization of the land in that way and turning it over. So what he does, he does take care of his immediate family. That's sort of indisputable. But at what cost? I think you're right to point that out. And certainly the rabbis have made that point as well, that um, I think it sort of, it makes sense that Brayshit sort of ends as its own continuous, continuous narrative and gives us Joseph and sort of gift wraps it neatly because Shemot, Exodus, is going to take a wildly different turn. Um, sort of that descent into the darkness of Pharaoh and the enslavement, all of that. Um, the Joseph, yeah, he's sort of laid the groundwork for it, even in the midst of his forgiveness and his kindness and all of these things. So we do need to not only keep in mind what we saw from before, but keep in mind what comes after. I think that's an absolutely this, correct this perspective. Is right intended consequence? What's that? He did not plan it that way. It happened, and it's an unintended consequence, as we have seen in many things. Absolutely, yeah. If you're going to write movie version three. Please. Uh, how about Joseph now has unmitigated power, which mm-hmm. he alone accomplished. And he's sitting in his room at night thinking, well, I've got these brothers who threw me into a pit. Mm-hmm. And the Canaanites, and they're from Canaan, and why should I take care of these people and risk my power that I've achieved? But he does that to help his people. Mm-hmm. He takes care of his people. Risking, I mean, if the Pharaoh found out, he'd say, wait a minute, what are you saving these Jews for at the cost of my people? The one question I have about the risk... We're actually going to see Pharaoh find out in just a little bit. Because um, he does, he's pretty above board with it. And this Pharaoh is a very different Pharaoh than the one that's going to come later on. Um, given his power, I think it's a question, like, to, to what, like, yes, in a time of scarcity, um, for those people over here to have more means less for the Egyptians. Absolutely. So it's a zero-sum situation from that standpoint. show favoritism, mm-hmm. which is a, almost a death sentence in its own right. To people that are other, So there is a favoritism, and you know, resources for them means less for the Egyptians. And at the same time, given his power, you know, given how powerful he is, as he says, to sort of rule over Egypt, that he t- gets this little allowance, this exemption that he sort of takes for his family. Joseph I don't know. To that saying, well, wait a minute, what do I have to gain by being good to my people? I'm going to lose everything if Pharaoh finds out about this. So, I mean, I can see Joseph wrestling with himself mm-hmm. saying, why should I take risks for these people that tried to kill me? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Well, this is written after Christianity began. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the writing down of this text wasn't it after Christianity? Well, I don't think so. Well, I'm just... It is in King David's time? Really? No, it was about 500, oh. 500, 500, 500 B.C. Oh, B.C. Okay, so, well, yeah. I mean, you can interpret this as contrasting to Christianity, nonetheless, in that 
it's not perfection. Our patriarchs and our heroes mm -hmm. are human just like the rest of us. And so this is just another example because every one of the patriarchs and matriarchs had personality or ethical issues. So 100%. Um, we are different from, we don't look for perfection because no human is perfect. Right. And here's another example. It's a deeply theological move. And the rabbis, even though this text predates Christianity, the rabbinic interpretation of it certainly has that on its mind. It certainly goes that direction too. That's absolutely right. Um, uh, did you uh, want to chime in too? Or, yeah, go ahead. So uh, two things. Mm -hmm. I see uh, at the end of verse 7, mm -hmm. and to keep you alive for a great deliverance. Well, in the end, it's going to be quite a while for the deliverance. So I was just wondering what the Hebrew word is. Okay, let's see. <laughs> what sentence are you reading? End of verse 7. Deliverance. I mean, do we see that again in Exodus, that word? Lifletagdola. Right. Um, that's a good question. Off the top of my head, I'm trying to see if I have any notes on that one word. Lifletagdola. I mean, it, it is a something big. Yeah, a great. It is the, the deliverance that's yeah. gadola. That's gadol. That's great. Um, I don't know that. Uh, so we don't see that phrase again in Exodus when we get to the great deliverance. <laughs> I'm trying to think. It's not. It's, I'll put it like this. It's not ringing any huge bells for me. Other rabbanim who have other sets of texts or things they've seen might pull something out on it, but um, but it's not triggering anything huge to me. That particular Hebrew phrase. Um, the interesting thing about picking on that piece, though, is it, to look at that in <coughs> contrast to what you're saying about you know that they're going to go into slavery. How much is Joseph foreseeing? Well, that's a good question. Maybe he's not foreseeing. That was my other, the great dreamer. Yeah, it's it's an interesting hypothetical or counterfactual to sort of wonder how much is he foreseeing? Um, because the important thing, think about the the thing about the Exodus as an entire happenstance is that's the set of circumstances that transform this loose confederation of clans and tribes and familial units into the Israelite people. Um, in Much in the same way, I use this analogy with the B'nai Mitzvah students, that the American Revolution transformed 13 colonies into the United States. Um, it's the moment that's sort of the birth of a nation um, convergence in that way. So it's more than just deliverance. It really is the creation of an Israelite people in that way. And so is he alluding to that? Maybe. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Well, let's remember, though, as the story was, this is really a pretty well-constructed story, so mm -hmm. at least as it's constructed, the Exodus sort of was not supposed to be as long as it was, and the deliverance was not necessarily supposed to be as far away as it turned out to be with the 400 years where God is off sleeping or doing whatever. <laughs> um, the story just sort of developed, it was richly enhanced with uh, with both of those extended periods. Mm -hmm. But as I understood it, as it sort of was constructed in the beginning, neither one was thought to be as long as they were. Sure, and the other thing that's worth bearing in mind is um, that these stories probably existed as individual stories being told by groups of people in different places at different times. 
Um, the big example of that that I always think about is scholars teaching that the Abraham story is probably the origin story of the people of the South, of the people of, because he's wandering in and around Beersheba and in the desert, and sort of, this is probably their origin story. The Jacob story is all about the people of further north in, you know, in and around what's today sort of the West Bank in some of these areas, that this was probably the origin story of people further north. There's some scholarship that um, theorizes that Isaac probably wasn't part of either story originally, and that Isaac was the story, the, the piece that came in to weave together the stories of the north and south into one people, which is why Isaac is such a passive character, why he goes and redigs his father's wells, why the person who's active in the Isaac story is actually his wife, Rebecca, is that originally Isaac may not have been part of the story, but that Isaac came later to weave together the people of the north and the south into having a common origin in that sense. Um, so Isaac becomes a really important device. But I just mention all of that as sort of an example of the way in which we get a lot of different stories from different people. And in that respect, the Bible perhaps is best thought of not as a single continuous story, but almost an anthology in that way. And so what's the relationship between this story in and around Egypt and the Canaanites and whatnot versus the Exodus story? Good question. It's an excellent question. Mickey, go ahead. This could be a, the writers of the Bible, Yeah, this could be a, ve a vehicle getting the Israelites into Egypt so they can then be redeemed. Could be. Right. Could be. Yeah, a couple more hands over here. Yeah, go ahead. It's also interesting that of all the stories we hear in, in the Bible and Torah, this is the longest and most detailed. Um, we don't get such a complete story about anybody else. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about that um, right at the beginning, that the Joseph story is the longest in that way. Um, that is very detailed. As as literature, it really is exemplary among a lot of the other uh, biblical material in that sense. Just the way it unfolds itself as a story and the development of plot, the development of characters and their motives. Um, it's a really remarkable story from that standpoint. Yeah. So looking at the Bible as more of like an anthology model, mm -hmm. yeah. do you think that helps explain... Um, we talked when we were talking about Jacob, why they would set him up as a trickster character if this is like the origin story of... The South. Yeah, like the whole generation of people. Um, looking at it as an anthology, does, um, does that help explain why... I don't know, like his, his um, relationship to Isaac, I guess? Could be. Very much could be. Um, look, and again, that's the piece about Isaac is a theory. I, I think it's... It's one of these things that this material is so ancient it would be very difficult to prove it, absent finding an inscription of that. But based on that theory, if we're working within that sort of field of biblical criticism, not criticism as in the Bible is bad, but criticism that emerged in uh, Western academia and Germany and whatever, yeah, I think that there's an invitation to play in those ideas and those theories to say that, yeah, that may be a possibility with it. Um, I want to continue with, yeah, one more, and then I want to continue with that thread, actually. My question is... People were coming to pay for grain. So were other people besides Canaanites asking for grain outside of Egypt? This thing about risk of, of uh, mm -hmm. giving favoritism to his family, my impression, which is what I'm asking, is mm -hmm. right. Did everyone come and say, I have money and let me 
uh, buy it, and and uh, Joseph took it so that the Pharaoh could buy it, have more land. Could be. I mean, we know that these were historically important trade routes. We yeah. know that the land of Israel is a crossroads um, geographically in a way that almost nowhere else in the world is. Um, one possible exception might be like where Istanbul is in Turkey today. But geographically, the convergence of so many peoples in one place, um, I think, yeah, it wouldn't be an unreasonable thought to think that, okay, there probably would have been other people passing through and coming through and interacting with it. I think that's totally fair to, uh, as a hypothetical. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really talking about the risk that Pharaoh would find out that only his family was... I wouldn't worry about the risk because he's going to reveal it to Pharaoh. Yeah, we're going to see that. Yeah. yeah, and that's actually where we're going to go. I want to continue with the Jacob piece right now. Um, we have Joseph. We just saw Joseph's revelation to his brothers and the way that he frames it, too. Um, the way that he holds sort of the truth of it. So now let's see how... Uh, how Jacob. Um, let's go to verse... Somebody want to read verses 9 through 15? Okay. Isn't that going backwards? No, we just finished verse 8. Okay. When Jacob... Turn back up to my father and say yes. to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me a lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near to me. You, your children, and your children's children, your flocks and herds, and all that you own. I will sustain you there, for there remain five more years of famine, so that you and your household and all that you own are not impoverished. Look, you can see with your own eyes, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it's my mouth speaking to you. Tell my father how they honor me in Egypt, and all that you have seen. Hurry up and bring my father down to here. He then fell weeping upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept with them. Only after this could his brothers respond to him. Okay, now we're going to jump forward to verse 25. Should I continue? Yeah, but look at 16. That's where the Pharaoh acknowledges this. Sure. I'll put it like, if you want to, we can go over that real quickly. I'm a little more interested in what Jacob, how Jacob responds to it. But since we're, you know, since we've gone there, sure, go ahead. They went up from Egypt. Hang on just a sec. Let's just do 16 very briefly. The news reached Pharaoh's place. Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his courtiers were pleased. And Pharaoh invites him, uh, load up your beast, go at once to Canaan. So Pharaoh seems to be on board with the project. Um, (laughs) Suffice it to say. Now let's continue with uh, 25. (laughs) Remember what Joseph did for the They went up and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. When they told him Joseph is still alive and he held sway over the whole land of Egypt, his heart froze, for he could not believe them. But when they told him all that Joseph had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to convey him, their father Jacob's spirit came alive. Israel said, Enough! My son Joseph is alive. I must go and see him before I die. Okay, we're going to jump forward again. We're in chapter 46 now to verse 28. We're gonna, I'm skipping over a whole bunch of lists of names over this, uh, who it is who's coming and 
settling down there altogether. I'm jumping around a little bit, but uh, here we go. All right, 28 through 30. Judah he sent ahead of him to Joseph to show him the way to Goshen. So they came to the region of Goshen. Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. He presented himself to him and threw himself on his neck, weeping all the time. Israel said to Joseph, Now that I've seen your face, for you're still alive, I can die at last. Okay. Thoughts, responses. Why doesn't he say, I have a reason to be li- to live? <laughs> it is interesting that he goes that way, too. Um, yeah. Why it is that he goes, okay, well, now I can die. Um, it's a good question. I mean, really. Maybe, I mean, people talk about people waiting. Right? Yes. And so, you know, this sort of sounds like he, he must be on the... Uh, must be on the precipice of death, or has felt like he has been. Absolutely. So perhaps this whole ordeal, or any of his other ordeals, have pushed him to this place of feeling like he's close to death. Um, like the passage of um, patriarch. Like now, yes. that, now that the whole family is down with Joseph, you can pass on. The- sure. He's he's done what he needed to do. He's fulfilled sort of his mission. He can pass the mantle of authority on in that way. Yeah. Along those lines, I notice it's uh, Israel and not Jacob. We go back and forth with that. It's true. So when you say Israel, it's what you say. It's more moving the, forward. Yeah. The people around the could, could be. Yeah. On um, the, the idea of waiting, like he's yeah. waiting, um, it implies that he's been hoping that he's still alive. Mm-hmm. He had something to wait for. Okay. If he really, truly believed that Joseph was dead, then why, why hold out hope and, and wait? Sure. A moment to ever Maybe he was waiting this whole time. Absolutely, holding on to that. We're going to see one more piece from Jacob, and then I want to talk about some of what we've seen. So let's jump forward again. Chapter 47, verse 7. Anyone else? 47. 47. Joseph then went and told Pharaoh, saying, My father, my brothers, their flocks, their herds, and all they own have arrived from the land of Canaan, and now they're in the region of Goshen. Out of all his brothers, Hang on. Wait, wait, wait. 47, verse 7. I thought you said 47. Somebody else. Joseph then brought his father Jacob and stood him before Pharaoh. Jacob greeted Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The span of the years of my lifetime has been 130. You and miserable have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the length of the days of the years of my fathers when they were alive. Jacob then gave Pharaoh a parting blessing, and he left Pharaoh's presence. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. They just, well, yes. First of all, like, that 130 is not a lot. I want to I want to encourage us to read the actual like numbers as being yeah. metaphor. Okay. Um, but yeah, clearly he's had a long life. But his response to it, and this is right after the great reunification, um, the welcoming, you know, the homecoming of Joseph and Jacob, few and hard have been the years of my life, nor do they come up to the lives of my fathers. Bitterness. Thoughts, questions, responses. Sadness that he hasn't been able to achieve when he, what his fathers had achieved. Maybe sadness. That could be too. Absolutely. Um, but a sense of having loss. less in that way. Sense of loss. Well, the child got away. Mm-hmm. Losing Joseph and losing 
Rebecca. I'm going to read a piece from Robert Alter's Torah commentary on this very verse. Jacob's somber summary of his own life echoes with a kind of complex, uh, solemn attitude against all that we have seen him undergo. He has, after all, achieved everything he aspired to achieve. The birthright, the blessing, marriage with his beloved Rachel, progeny, and wealth. But one measure of the profound moral realism of the story is that although he has achieved everything that he wanted, it is not in the way he would have wanted, and the consequence is more pain than contentment. Think about it. At the end of the day, he did get all of it. He lived through, but it was all through all manner of subterfuge. The blessing and the birthright that he managed to rip off from his brother Esau, the marriage to Rachel, which he got uh, through the subversion of Lavan and forcing him to marry Leah first and work for him 14 years. Um, there's the children that he gets, and that's out of the, the conflict, the competition between Rachel and Leah. Then there's this name that he gets, Israel, the blessing, and he does that through being disfigured in this fight with this angel overnight, this grievous injury. And he eventually gets back his beloved Joseph, but after, you know, his children went and did this terrible thing to his most beloved son. Um, So at the end of the day, he does get everything, but he's incredibly bitter about it. Yeah. Well, it just strikes me as, you know, this is a perfect example of of the two kinds of people in the world, those who think the glass is half full and those who think it's half empty. And uh, the father is one, and the son uh, strikes me as exactly the other, Joseph. So you're taking, me to ex- you're taking us to exactly where I was going with this, that we have two models in Joseph and Jacob for how it is we tell stories about ourselves and our journeys and our lives. Um, the story that Joseph tells about his journey and his trials and tribulation and everything bad that happens to him, the way he goes with it is he says that it's okay, don't be distressed, don't beat yourself up for it because God brought me here. Jacob is almost the opposite. And, and not for nothing, Joseph says that to the people that afflicted him, the very people that pushed him into the sorrow and the misery and that um, victimized him. Jacob's sort of the opposite. He goes to somebody who's this benefactor, the Pharaoh, who has invited them all, bring, come on down, come on in, we're going to take care of you and your family. And he unloads all of his bitterness on him. He says, my years have been miserable, and they have been too few in between. Pharaoh's not responsible for it, but Jacob puts it on Pharaoh with all of his bitterness. Um, even though, as we just saw, he got everything that he set out to get in life. He, you know, on paper... You'd think he ought to be a happy guy because he's accomplished everything that he set out for. And yet, what he speaks from is a kind of brokenness, in fact. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's interesting in the women's commentary, the um, translation of, few and miserable have been the days of the years of my life, so implying like a lack of action in Mm. the actual days. So like the years might be long, but like the way that the days were being used was not active. And then looking back at the story, like Rebecca was the one who... um, was the active player in mm-hmm. the birthright, and then um, Rachel and Leah were the ones who were active in like that whole competition. And mm-hmm. then even like Judah's compassion um, was catalyzed by his experience with his sons and Tamar. So mm-hmm. like even in the things that he got, he didn't really actively get any of them. So like 
even though he did accumulate them, mm-hmm. he's the active player in a lot of it. That's a great commentary as well. I appreciate that. That you know, even with everything that he might have amassed, and I think there's a warning, a message for us in that. That um, to be born in the United States of America in um, Jewish communities that are relatively wealthy. Um, it's its own blessing that we weren't born in horrendously impoverished or diseased places or that we weren't born in Jewish communities in different moments or locales in history um, where our outlook on life might have been very different. Um, it, it's, worth, like, it's worth holding that, yes, we work hard and we may have accomplished a lot, and we were also born to great blessing as well. Some of this is of our own action, and some of this is what we've inherited in that way. And so Jacob, I think, is a great example of that. I appreciate you uplifting that in that Jacob, yeah, there's, you know, his subterfuge in around the birthright and the blessing. I mean, that was pretty slick. But a lot of what works out for him, he's sort of a passive agent in the midst of it, and he is blessed from without um, as a result of it. So I think that's a, it's a worthwhile commentary, too. Other thoughts about these two sort of models of holding the struggle and the journey, Joseph and Jacob, and that perspective, the glass half empty and half full. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were No, I'm, I'm pondering everything you were saying. I, I mean, I'm wondering if things... I mean, he did achieve what he wanted to achieve, but on the other hand... He had longer, longer periods of pain. Um, I think his, his son was dead. Yes. And yeah. waiting for Rachel all those years. <clears throat> and hiding from Asav. He keeps thinking Asav is coming to kill him yes, with his band exactly. of warriors for the longest time and splitting his camp so that if one of them is destroyed, they won't all be killed. I mean, there's a, there's a lot there. It's not to diminish or minimize Jacob's suffering, um, but he does seem sort of bound by it at this point. Um, and that particular suffering was brought on himself running from his deeds and there's more pessimism with age generally anyway isn't there could be. Could be. I think there are different ways of holding. Well, I don't want to think that. <laughs> I, well, at least from my, from my own experience, not being advanced in age, from the people that I spend time with and work with who are further along in age and in their journeys and lives, I do see different ways of holding um, the journey, different ways of looking back um, yes. on, the, on the road traveled. Uh, and that's not to say that everybody should just be happy all the time and that, oh, everything happens for a reason. I don't buy that as a particular theology in a sort of lightweight, you know, superficial way. Um, but there are different ways of holding the struggle and holding the suffering and holding what it is we experience. Um, and we see two different models here. Um, you can choose what thing. Everybody has hardships in your life. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a choice or if it's just nature, but mm-hmm. some people focus on them constantly. Yeah. We all know people like that, and some mm-hmm. people choose to focus on the bright spots. Yes. So Jonathan, and great coping. Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs talked a little bit about it in terms of he draws a couple of different lines with this. He dr- looks at um, the whole idea behind uh, behavioral um, psychological counseling, behind psychotherapy in this way, is this idea that. By thinking differently about your circumstances, you can actually refocus the way you feel about them. Yes. This is sort of an innovation that came out of post-war um, psychological, psychotherapeutic uh, innovation. And that was an innovation that happened um, after World War II that 
wasn't really clear necessarily. It wasn't obvious. But now we sort of take it for granted that thinking about your circumstances differently can make you feel differently. He even goes, he draws a connection between that and Chabad uh, Hasidus, Hasidut, this idea that um, a lot of Hasidut is all about sort of the emotional and spiritual life. But the Chabad movement, he said, one of the innovations there was that your intellectual relationship with a lot of these texts um, can change the emotional and spiritual life that you have. Um, and that was an innovation from the late 1700s. Again, this is Jonathan Sachs' sort of riffing on it. But he says, Joseph is a good example of this. This idea that the way you think about circumstances can change the way that you feel about them. Um, that you can actually take greater agency in terms of your own life and your own perspective and how you feel about this. It's a very empowering kind of message from Joseph that we hear from him. And not to belabor the point, mm-hmm. but the, the, the comment I made earlier, uh, that parable does not say the glass was full and empty. Mm-hmm. It says the glass was half full or half empty, which are the, which are the same. Mm-hmm. It's just how do you look at it? Yeah. I mean, the idea is that suffering in life is inevitable. Correct. Um, Maybe even to the point of 50-50, but how are you going to interpret that one is either half full or half empty? And there are extremes, not for nothing, like the kinds of... I know people who are victims of different kinds of crime and predation in our society, that's definitely tipping the glass to being 60-40 or 80-20, depending on the circumstances um, in which one finds oneself. But I think... You know, suffering in that sense is still inevitable, um, and so then the question is sort of what you can do with that. Mickey, we, we don't uh, always plan what's going to happen in our lives. Because what we've accomplished isn't what we plan for. We we look for direction, and one thing leads to another in different directions. So we achieve this or we achieve that, but it isn't that we. This is like a Say a person wants to go into law, mm-hmm. and he, when he goes all these eight years of education, it's, it's not what he thought it was all about. Mm-hmm. So, but but then they go. Uh, you have choices what direction mm-hmm. using that education. You be a, you can be a corporate lawyer, or a divorce attorney, or this goes for any of the professions or anything you do in life. Sure. There are so many different ways of framing the journey and different choices that we can make. And we do those, I think, in large part based on that outlook, which returns to that point of how it is we see ourselves and we see the journey and the stories we tell about ourselves. Go ahead. Yeah, and Joseph not only empowers himself based on like the actions he takes in life, but he empowers himself by being able to read meaning into dreams. So even when he's asleep, the, like, the things that he's... Um, seeing and feeling are meaningless, but nice. some sort of pattern, just not just for himself, but for like the future of the people. So, uh, absolutely, a hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. Um, nothing, nothing. This in my case. Nothing to do with best, better than having your daughter-in-law tell you you were so negative. And then when your daughter-in-law tells you that, 
Um, uh, I, I have a good motivation to re-examine and perhaps change. So that sounds like you're making the decision to tell a different story about yourself and your journey um, in that way. Look, I, yeah. The redefinition of, of facts are terrific in the therapy. Yeah. But there's a quote that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln, you're as happy as you want to be. I'm going to end with a quote from Mike Tyson, actually, the boxer. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah, he said that once, which I think is great. So the question is, you know, what do you do with that? What is the story you're going to tell about that? Jacob tells one story. We see that pretty clearly. But Joseph tells a very different story. And I think in that way, this parsha is a really great reminder that we actually have a lot of power in terms of determining what kind of story we want to tell about ourselves, about the journey, about the struggles, the trials, all the things that don't go right, that um, that we've got a lot of uh, power in that self-authorship. Is that power infinite? No. Are, do terrible things happen? Yes. Can we always transcend them with such grace and what have you? No. But there still is a lot of agency there. And I think this Parsha is a really worthwhile reminder not to lose sight of that. Um, there's, the jo- there's the Jacob way of telling our stories um, and living into some of the bitterness of what has been. And then there's the Joseph way of telling the story, of taking this stuff and saying, don't beat yourself up over it. It'll be okay. And it is okay. So with that, I'll say Shabbat Shalom. Mm-hmm.